five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. Today on SpaceQ, I have the pleasure of talking with Matt Bamsey, a research associate at the DLR, which is the German Space Agency. Matt is a Canadian and was one of the 17 finalists in the Canadian Space Agency astronaut recruitment campaign. Before joining the DLR in 2013, Matt had been a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Florida and the University of Guelph, where he received his PhD in environmental biology. He had also previously worked with the Canadian Space Agency. I first met Matt at the Houghton Mars Crater on Devon Island when he was a student intern at the Canadian Space Agency and an undergrad at Carleton University. My company, SpaceRef, had donated a greenhouse, what became known as the Arthur Clark Mars Greenhouse, to the Houghton Mars Project. The greenhouse shell was built by myself, my business partner Keith Cowing, and many others at the Houghton Mars Project. Matt, who was working with the Greenhouse Science Project lead, Alain Berenstein of the Canadian Space Agency, helped install the equipment and cultivate the crops. Matt is now working at the Eden ISS Consortium Project at the DLR. The Eden ISS Project is a ground demonstration of plant cultivation technologies for safe food production in space. The ground demonstration includes an advanced greenhouse that will be shipped to the Antarctic in the second week of October, where it will arrive in mid-December. Matt will be part of the first team to set up the greenhouse at the German Neumeier Station 3. Welcome, Matt, to the Space Cube podcast. Mark, thanks for the introduction. It's been a few years since we last caught up, so a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> All right, before we discuss the Eden ISS project, let's discuss your experience at the Canadian Space Agency astronaut recruitment campaign. You spent a year trying to become one of Canada's next astronauts, and you came very close. How was the experience, and did anything stand out? I would say, Mark, a lot of, thing, a lot of things stood out. You're, you're indeed right on the one-year experience. Uh, CSA definitely does recruitments right. I mean, they're very formal, very comprehensive, so to say, very formal in terms of their uh, evaluation. And, yeah, from start to finish, a year going through all the various steps. I mean, when, when you start getting down to the smaller numbers, things get even a bit more serious. But how it went, um, definitely only positive things to say about the recruitment. CSA has two amazing astronaut candidates now in Josh and Jenny who are you know, going to represent Canada extremely well. But from another candidate's perspective, yeah, like in terms of being tested both from a physical perspective and mental testing, uh, CSA could not do it better. And I think uh, other agencies do and have looked to CSA for, for what they're doing in their recruitment campaigns. And I'd be happy to give it another shot in a few years, hopefully. So, uh, well, that's uh, interesting to note. And who knows? Uh, I mean, usually it's quite a few years these days between uh, recruitment campaigns. But uh, depending on how budgets go in Canada and uh, uh, how the uh, development of the new launch systems in the U.S., uh, there could be more opportunities available for uh, Canadians, which means maybe we'll actually have a few more astronaut uh, uh, selection processes coming up in the next 10 years, hopefully sooner rather than later. So um, you, you mentioned the, the training there. 
Um, Chris Hadfield, uh, during the course of the training, said, we never went through it this tough. Was it really that tough? I would say having had the fortunate, I guess, opportunity to compare at least two recruitments, the one in 2009 and the one in 2017, definitely it's it's a tough process. Uh, CSA and the partners in the recruitment process want to make want to put you at your limits because they want to see how you're going to react under those extreme circumstances, both uh, you know in individual perspective and when you're working on a team. So. Um, I can remember definitely some late nights, uh, you know, hitting hitting the sack at uh, 1 a.m. and being up again at five or five or six, getting ready for the next day, and then being tested again exhaustively from a from a physical and a mental perspective. And I think it's really that fine mix. And this is one difference that I saw between the 2009 and 2017 recruitment is that nice fine mix between this physical and mental testing. And I think this recruitment, they really did an amazing job of mixing those two things together. You know, we'd be one station where you're essentially almost writing a test on a piece of paper. And then two seconds later, you'll be carrying sandbags around essentially. So um, hats off to them from that. And I think uh, every recruitment, uh, they're learning something and next time will only be even more challenging, but even more appropriate to finding the, the best candidates. Now, you're working at the DLR. Have you ever considered trying to go through an ESA recruitment campaign? Would you be allowed? <laughs> That's a that's a good question. Interesting when you when you look at the numbers for the Canadian, uh, you know, success rate in uh, recruitment campaigns, the there are the the chance of becoming Canadian astronaut is pretty low. But from a, you know, they're all of course a very difficult process. But no, I'm definitely committed to uh, the Canadian program. And in fact, uh, my wife and I are, are looking back uh, to get back to Canada at some point in the next year or so. So definitely committed to the cause and yeah you're absolutely right not getting any younger and uh, depending on how long another recruitment campaign goes uh, may not be another chance but that that doesn't deter me from one bit uh, life is good no matter you know what happens and I, you know we got to be proud to see uh, the number of great people that did apply this time around and you know only a few get selected so got to keep going and uh, yeah looking forward to get more directly involved with the Canadian program again here in the coming years. Okay. So now let's let's uh, talk about your ongoing work at the DLR. You spent a good portion of your early career working on greenhouse research for food production in space. So how did you end up at the DLR and working on the Eden ISS project? Yeah, in fact, you're absolutely right, Mark. We were, as you mentioned uh, quickly in the introduction, we were lucky to meet one another up on uh, Devon Island, the high Canadian Arctic uh, Really great that SpaceRef was able to to build the greenhouse on Devon Island, and then uh, we had some nice collaborative years up there, developing what we're looking at is yeah plant production systems for long duration space flight. So how you can provide one you know food resources to long duration crews, but also to close up the other resource loops, water and air essentially. And so the the work on Devon, as you well know, uh, was primarily focused on, you know, how you can remotely operate a plant production system with limited crew time. Because just like on station, astronaut crew time is something of criticality. There's not much of it to go around. And to try to limit that with respect to developing a large greenhouse, you want you want to try to minimize the amount of crew time. And so that work on Devon in conjunction with Alain, yourselves, and other partners, Simon Fraser University, University of Guelph in Florida, um, we developed some interesting systems that were applicable to that, and that helped me 
uh, get into and meet a couple other researchers that were focused on, yeah, plant production in space. So University of Florida, and we developed some payloads for parabolic and suborbital applications. And from there, was fortunate to apply to get over to Germany on a Marie Curie postdoc opportunity, which is a great opportunity for Canadians coming into Europe for initial funding. And then I've stayed on as a public servant here in Germany. But yeah, the main reason why I came over to Germany was the opportunity to participate in this Antarctic project. We had no funding for that project at the time, and we were fortunate soon after my arrival, a core team here at DLR, we put in a proposal to the EU Horizon 2020 uh, program, and we're fortunate to get uh, 4.5 million euros uh, for a 14 um, partner consortium, which uh, DLR is uh, leading up, and yeah, we'll be deploying that system later this year. So, uh, before we get into more of the details on, on the Eden ISS project, uh, from your personal experience, what were the lessons that you learned from the working in the Arctic greenhouse that influenced your current work? That is, yeah, that's a good question. I think the biggest, we always hear this term space analog, and I think there's a lot of merit in developing hardware, and I think, you know, Canada has been one of the players in uh, analog testing of, of hardware, whether it be mobility systems, robotics, in our case, uh, biological life support systems, using these remote environments because, for one, it puts you into the right, the, the engineer, the scientist, into the right mindset uh, that they're going to need to develop hardware for space applications or to conduct their science in those environments. Um, but it also typically is an extreme environment, of course, not one-to-one with lunar or Martian environment, but uh, puts you into an extreme environment where you definitely have to tailor your system to that. And I think it's also this isolation and logistics challenge. Um, For Devon Island, uh, it's the largest uninhabited island in the world, you know, one-hour flight, as you know well, from Resolute Bay to the Houghton Crater. And so you can't simply go and find a screw or a tool that you may need. So it's also the planning aspects that come into play, um, which are very applicable to planning, you know, again, the logistics of such missions when you are venturing further, developing a a surface system for the moon or Mars, for example. So there's a lot of great tie-ins from an analog perspective that uh, analog program should be looked as a good first step for hardware development. And from my career perspective, uh, that's really been my interest is following the hardware or the the science that uh, I develop or help to develop into these interesting environments, whether it be the high Arctic, uh, whether it be in the parabolic flight, whether it be in the unique environments in the laboratory, or or now hopefully uh, coming up in a few months at Antarctica. So um, who are the key partners in the project and and how is Canada involved other than yourself? (laughs) Yeah, th- thankfully we have uh, the University of Guelph who is involved in developing a few systems, uh, in particular the nutrient delivery system and the what we call, I guess, the computer system or the command and data handling system. Uh, they're the main uh, Canadian partners and they've developed, developed and delivered their hardware. We also have uh, some partners from the U.S. and the Science Advisory Board that we have has uh, U.S. Uh, participants on board. But yeah, we're that's one nice thing that's come out of this Horizon 2020 uh, program is this link between Europe and Canada in this perspective uh, in furthering, in this case, biological life support systems and furthering that collaboration in this case between DLR and uh, Canada. So 
give our readers a sense of, of what this greenhouse is actually looks like. Um, from what I understand, it's a, it's a mobile container-sized greenhouse, um, and it's going to be located in the Antarctic at the German Neumeier Station 3. Where, where is the station, and what other facilities are around there? That's great. Yeah. So when you when we do talk about remoteness, uh, you know, Antarctica is a big place, and uh, Neum- the Neumeier 3 station is the third German station. And one very nice aspect about uh, the Neumeier station in comparison to some of the other overwintering stations, and there are about 40 of those in a spread across the Antarctic continent, is that there are nine overwinters. So much smaller than you would see, for example, at South Pole or McMurdo, for example. So it's essentially something on the order of what you could envision on an initial crew size for a Mars mission. So that those play-in tie-ins are quite nice. And our facility um, will be located about 400 meters from the station. So we're, we are independent of the station itself. And we're two 20-foot shipping containers put together. And that helps from the transport chain down to Antarctica's at least the German chain is based on 20-foot shipping containers. So we have these 20-foot containers that we'll, we've just recently broken apart here in Germany. We'll be sending them down on a, a container ship and then on an icebreaker. They'll get offloaded at the station or, on, I guess, the ice on the, onto the ice shelf. The German station is on a, sort of a 200-meter-thick ice shelf and, and about uh, 20 kilometers inland from the coast. So it'll be driven across the the ice shelf will put it up onto a large platform because there's about one meter snow accumulation there every year, which is something that the station itself has to deal with and has to be propped up uh, every year. And uh, the the inner workings of the facility is what makes it uh, special. Though we're using some of the most advanced uh, technologies in plant production systems to really get the most green stuff or you know plant material out of there as possible for the minimum amount of input requirements um, and so we have our facility broken essentially into two sections one of the containers is essentially purely for plant production so all we have is racks of plants in there we're using aeroponics so no soil um, and just spraying the roots uh, with the nutrients that they may need and in the other section we have the support systems that uh, provide the facilities for this other greenhouse as well as a one rack, you know, full rack ISS-like uh, payload rack that contains a number of plant growth systems that are sealed, and that's something that um, Europe could position itself to still send to station um, before station is retired to demonstrate sort of on-orbit or in-transit uh, plant production systems. But be happy to get into any of the specifics of the Eden ISS facility. Let me know uh, what what's of most interest to you, think, Mark. Thank yeah, you. so uh, you, you brought up so, several very interesting things there. So um, one, one part of the aspect of this project is that um, you actually have the an ISS-type rack so that it can be placed on the ISS or, you know, possibly any other uh, stations uh, that get built in, in, in low-Earth orbit. Um, so, uh, so that's quite interesting. But um, more a fundamental question that somebody might ask is, uh, you've got this greenhouse, why move it from Germany in the first place and put it in the Antarctic? Yes, that's, I, that's, that's good. That is, that is always the debate. Um, analog, you know, taking something to a remote environment or doing something in a lab. There, there is always a trade-off there. I think there's room for, for both of those things. 
um, our project allowed us to have essentially a one-year test phase of the facility here in Germany, which included building it together because we had um, components coming from all of our 14 partners essentially, and we had to integrate those, test them out, and now we're just taking that apart uh, for it to be sent. So definitely there's a lot to be learned in laboratory-type settings where you know we're in full control of all of the variables we're building stuff where we can easily make modifications but yes the question becomes is it worth the cost the extra cost and trouble of sending it to a space analog site or a remote environment like antarctica or a arid desert for example and yeah that you have to weigh the the pros and cons and our project has been based around that because we we do want to get the most uh, relevance or benefit out of this project for future biological life support systems. We want to measure, you know, all the inputs and outputs of our facility to better provide values for life support designers in the development of their future systems. Um, we want to be able to demonstrate that, you know, this ISS-like rack can be used for a one-year period at least uh, in relevant conditions and measure the amount of crew time that it requires for operation. And just one major aspect for life support systems, and yes, plant-based, you know, biological life support systems are still a little ways out in terms of actually using them to close close up the air, food, and water loops. But one of the main difficulties in uh, life support systems right now is reliability. You know, reliability becomes a fundamental question whether you do want to use a system to close up, for example, uh, the air loop, you know, removing CO2 providing O2 back to the crew, for example, or do you just bring everything in a tank and not have to worry about a particular, you know, recycling system for that? That's always a trade-off is reliability. So taking our facility to a difficult location and actually trying to operate it for a year gives us some of that fundamental reliability data that also feeds into life support designers. And lastly, um, this is something that the Neumeyer 3 crew members want and will benefit from having fresh produce in Antarctica. There's a nine month period um, at this station where there's no access by boat or airplane. And so being able to provide fresh produce through that nine months is of high interest to the German Antarctic Institute, the Alfred Wenger Institute. Yeah. So I was going to ask that. So you are actually going to eat the product of your of your work. <laughs> that, that's correct. That was, I mean, there's some scientists calling for, you know, as much produce as we can provide to them for analyses. You know, that's, they got to weigh that uh, pro and con with respect to how much is devoted to science and how much is devoted to the crew. But yeah, we're, we're actually producing a reasonable amount, something on the order of seven kilograms of edible biomass or plant material um, for the crew uh, per week, which is not uh, non-negligible. So it'll it'll provide some psychological benefit. Yeah. But they, if 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 for whatever reason the plants fail, uh, they're not relying on it as a food source. They have their other obviously dry goods and whatnot uh, in storage that they can use uh, on an ongoing basis. But um, at least I, I'm correct in that, right? You yeah you are absolutely correct. Now, maybe in the future, maybe not, but yeah. <laughs> well, no, certainly not in space, right? You wanna you wanna make yeah. it uh, a part of the the system. Um, so, right. what what actually what are the products? I mean, what are the plants that you're going to be growing that they'll be able to consume? That's that yeah that is typically one of the first questions we get when visitors come into our facility and see 
you know, this full ship a container filled with plants, you know, what is actually being grown in here and, and why. Um, and we did go through an exhaustive study um, with one of our partners, uh, Wageningen University in the Netherlands. Netherlands, like Canada, is very well known for greenhouse production. So we had this partner go and do a study. We provided the space links, so to our NASA colleagues, to our JAXA colleagues, to people who have in the past developed what's called candidate crop lists or what plants you would actually typically send on a long duration mission for reasons of nutrition, for reasons of psychological benefit. And um, they did do a detailed study of what crops we should we should uh, deploy to the Neumeyer station. And, and it really, for us, initially, we've come to uh, decide on high water content plants, so things that you typically couldn't store even in the freezer or even do anything with, so something that you want to eat and eat it right away, eat it fresh. And we're not looking at like soy, soybeans or something like that, or wheat that is a little bit more long-term. So we're, we're focused on that. So you, you, we have lettuce, various lettuce crops, tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, uh, and a various number of herbs, radish, and a few other things like that. But the typical things that you would see on your dinner plate that are, you know, something that you can't typically store, high water content things. Well, that sounds uh, actually appetizing. <laughs> and, and also, I suppose there's psychological benefits to this as well, because in, you're in an extreme environment, you're, you don't have access to uh, you know, the grocery store. So to actually have this uh, greenhouse with its fresh produce, uh, there is that psychological benefit. Is that, is that taken into account? That is, yeah, Mark, I think that's one of actually the drivers, especially for, you know, early term um, plant production systems for in transit to, to Mars, for example, is maybe a small scale plant production system that provides food. And that for us is we have one of our uh, work package leaders or one of our uh, partners in this who will be addressing the psychological benefit. There has been a few uh, studies in Antarctica because there have been uh, several plant production systems sent to Antarctica before, different than our Eden ISS project, but that have tried to assess the benefit of uh, psychological benefit of plants. And there's one Korean study uh, that I remember that uh, just about 85% of the station crew members responded that the vegetables were either very helpful or somewhat helpful to their mental health. And that's people who haven't had access to fresh produce. And that's a pretty decent statistic uh, with respect to Antarctic crew members. And for us, um, it's a central reason, you know, as, as long as, the, you know, I think some people do uh, initially when they see plants being pulled out of a greenhouse that's never been exposed to natural light, never been exposed to soil, um, some people may question, wow, is this actually healthy, you know, and that's one thing, one barrier that you have to overcome uh, to some individuals for sure to, to show them that indeed we can produce a tomato that is like a field crop tomato, but much quicker, uh, much, you know, without pesticides, et cetera. So, um, but the psychological benefit is a key aspect of biological life support systems over the physical chemical systems or machine-based systems uh, that I think will continue to help sell it in the future. You're going to be using the facility for a year up there. You're going to be part of the first crew. And if I remember with the material that you sent me ahead of time, that there's going to be four of you to start with. How does it work? Is it... Um, uh, are all four of you working in the greenhouse at the same time? Do you take shifts? Because by you being in the greenhouse itself, don't you uh, affect the environment? 
Yes, but uh, that, that's a good question. I, and I think, you know, based off your experience also working in a remote place on a, a greenhouse project, which is makes it uh, interesting, you can relate to the fact that, yeah, these are relatively small systems. Having many people in there, it can get a little bit uh, uh, filled and difficult to work. Um, in our case, there will be several weeks that it'll just be set up time before we do have any uh, plants uh, being grown in the facility. Um, so there won't be any impact on the you know, gas closure or what have you. And in fact, typically that is the nice benefit of the interaction between plants and humans is that, you know, you have a human working in a, a closed plant production system. We're actually giving off the CO2 that the plants will use and they will produce O2 that we can then use. So that loop closure is actually good. So having actually people working in the greenhouse for us minimizes the amount of resources that we need to send for example from a co2 perspective uh, you know people give off heat you can go down a number of benefits of having people working in there but yeah the first we've planned out our first few uh, weeks of activity will be the four of us will be on site for um, about seven weeks we'll have a few other individuals uh, joining us a few weeks later um, from Talisalina space and uh, University of Florida and actually one of our uh, team members um, the German Antarctic Institute, uh, AVI, has increased their crew size by one. And so one of our uh, teammates will be staying um, 13 months on station. So he'll be the primary operator of the facility um, once we leave and uh, maintaining it throughout the year. And we'll be he'll be essentially logging how much time he spends in there and uh, we'll be working with him via our quote-unquote mission control center here at DLR and uh, a number spread across uh, the world um, and working throughout the entire year with him down there, which will be interesting. Now, is the facility designed so that um, uh, if need be, it doesn't have to have a human interaction? Um, it's completely self-contained? In our, in our case, Mark, we do, in, in some sense, we can go up to circa five days where we don't necessarily have to have somebody, an operator in there. And of course we can push that a little further, um, but we don't have full, we have a, quite a bit of automation in our systems, such as the lighting, nutrient delivery, and things providing the, the nutrients to the, the plants, for example, but we don't have any robotic systems built into the greenhouse. That was a focus area early in the project. Um, and interestingly, we did conduct um, we, an early stage of our project was we actually conducted a two-week uh, concurrent engineering study where, for those who aren't familiar with that term, we brought in experts of the various disciplines in our uh, project, got them all in the same room for two weeks, used some special communication tools, and everybody was able to work together intensively for those two weeks to come up with an initial design. And at that point, uh, we did rule out a robotic system, but it's something we definitely wish to address in the future to, again, focus on reducing that uh, crew time um, requirement of the facility overall. So this project is uh, obviously has a great significance for food production in space, but from what I understand, there's also terrestrial benefits. So uh, can you explain how some of that research and, and uh, some of the partners are involved in that they'll then use this and uh, to help food production here on Earth? That's, uh, I'm glad you bring that up actually, Mark. Uh, and that's something I think we, all of us in the space community should be looking towards to some extent is 
what are the other direct terrestrial benefits that we can uh, bring from such a project. And I think that's one thing that uh, the Canadian Space Agency, I know from my experience there, as well as DLR, uh, looks to do with their projects. And we're, we have a few uh, specific focus areas where we're trying to further how this developing plant production systems for extreme environments can benefit terrestrially. And from a Canadian perspective, uh, I think you would agree that there is very there's so, there's a lot of promise, and it should happen hopefully in the near term of plant production systems for our remote northern communities. You know that are fly-in only, for example, um, and actually developing something where um, the individuals who live there can have access to, to fresh food. And that was one of the benefits of the Arthur Clark Mars Greenhouse on Devon Island, and it's something that is still being looked at by a number of groups, but hasn't uh, flourished quite yet in Canada, although there are people looking at it, and uh, facilities such as Eden ISS and the Arthur Clark Mars Greenhouse should help get us closer to those things, and with a, a little bit more directed uh, um, push towards that, I think we, we'll see a number of small-scale plant production systems in northern communities hopefully soon. And, and this is something that can be set up so that the local community can maintain it themselves? Yeah, that, that is one aspect that is one of the, is always one, one of the listed things is the, the, the training of the operators of these facilities because you're right, the, the more, I guess, high-tech the facility is, maybe the more you can get out of it for the limited amount of resources, but it does often mean just like it would be in any place where you um, you know you haven't had somebody actually build the the system it sometimes requires expertise that takes some additional training on and of course you know when something breaks uh, at your home not every one of us knows how to fix a dishwasher or a car or what have you so we call in the experts well in a remote community sometimes uh, that expert cannot easily get in and so that reliance on the individuals operating the facility uh, becomes even more important and um that so yeah the the facility on the facility level is one thing but also this project Eden ISS is also looking at some sensor uh technology that could be appropriate for example I'll bring up one example with the University of Guelph they're looking at uh, special sensors again we grow all of our plants in essentially water that has the nutrient solution in it like hydroponic solution and Guelph in conjunction with the Institut National d'Optique in Quebec is developing sensors that can tell um, the operator how much of a given nutrient is in the water because every nutrient that's in the water potassium calcium for example nitrate those can all affect plant growth so knowing what the concentrations of those things are is important and typically you can only get those concentrations by taking a sample and sending it to a laboratory to get a measurement and so this instrument can actually do um, online sampling in a remote place so you don't have to send your water sample somewhere else and actually get you some data on site so that's important for us in Antarctica next year. Are there um, specific crops that uh, are more suitable for this type of uh, enclosed environment and also that have, uh, uh, I suppose, a higher nutritional content that you're looking at? And, and what's the difference between growing it in the Antarctic and then growing it in a zero-G environment in space? Good, yeah, good one. There's, so, yeah, from I guess from a crop selection perspective, yeah, you, you def definitely want to weigh a few of the factors for example, how hard is the plant to grow? Because some plants do require 
you know, more work than others. Um, how much nutrition can you get from a given plant? What is what's called the harvest, the harvest index, for example? So how much plant material grows and how much of it can you actually eat? So when, you know, you think of a, a large tree, maybe you're going to get just some small apples off the tree and most of the tree is wood, uh, for example, whereas other plants like lettuce, you can eat most of the plants. So those are, you know, some of the variables that, that factor in. And when you're comparing um, microgravity or on-orbit growth to growth in 1G or lunar surface or Martian gravity, there are some definite increased challenges in the microgravity environment. And the, the main one that um, people, researchers have seen with the current onboard facilities, such as uh, Veggies, the one that's most uh, well-known onboard station, and the Advanced Plant Habitat has recently launched both uh, NASA facilities developed by uh, Orbitech, or now Sierra Nevada, um, is handling of the water and making sure you can reliably get the water to your roots um, so the plants can grow because water in the microgravity environment, as you can envision through videos and what have you, behaves a whole lot differently than it does in a 1G environment in terms of following the gravity vector and going down. We can more easily control the movement of water in 1G. So what we do here on Earth transfers extremely well over to lunar and uh, Martian surface operations, and there shouldn't be much difference in terms of the systems there, but it is a difference between um, what we do here on the ground and uh, on orbit, and that's one reason why we have a this ISPR rack or this uh, full rack International Space Station-like rack in our facility in Antarctica because it's testing some of the technologies that are appropriate for uh, on-orbit production. So... The project's going to run for another 13 months or so, right? Uh, what's the future of the Eden ISS project? Will that be it when it's over, or is it going to morph into something else? Yeah, you're, you're correct on the current uh, project end is, yeah, after one year of operations, uh, we'll bring some samples home, process those, um, and then, well, we'll know the answer to your question before that, of course, because we'll need to decide if the facility stays in Antarctica, which I hope it would, um, there's a lot of energy that has gone into getting the facility ready and it would be a pity just for one year of operation. So I would, it would be highly likely that the facility would stay uh, a second, third, hopefully longer year. But there has been, we have been speaking with other potential users. Um, for example, we had some meetings with the European Astronaut Center uh, in Cologne about the Eden ISS facility being used in a, sort of a, a mock-up facility that they're building there um, right now, then their facility will include a habitat, a terrain, et cetera. And so because our facility is mobile, um, it could serve its purpose in some other location as well, and the design would permit it. We had designed it to also operate here in sort of this uh, this climate because we've had this one-year test phase, but also be able to operate in Antarctica. So it would transfer over to another location without too much trouble. But yeah, from a main perspective, our hope is that it does remain as a facility that can be used to get some good scientific data out and uh, help set the footwork uh, or the plans for future uh, similar facilities in the future. Could it be turned into an actual, you know, move from the research stage to primarily a production facility where you have one person or whatever that's tasked to, uh, as part of the duties down there to keep things going? Would that work? I think that would also work, Mark. Yeah, once 
we uh, I'm sure you know right right now things are running pretty smoothly but uh, as as you know you know when you take something to a difficult place that's where things happen and so I'm sure I'm sure we're going to run into some technical problems but maybe after one year with a lot of uh, challenges uh, fixed if if we have many challenges hopefully not but there probably will be some that uh, it can turn into more of a operational facility where we don't need to have somebody monitoring everything as often as we will this year and so maybe a less constraint on the crew itself and so there may be some more interest uh, to keep it around but i think the the alfred wegner institute or the german antarctic institute is very interested in having the facility there for a few years and uh, you know assessing the benefit it provides to the the crew down there and you know their other other antarctic uh, stations have also been interested in ramping up their activities in this domain as well. So I, I don't think it's an area that's going away. And uh, plants have actually been taken down to Antarctica since 1902. So we're going back a long time. Um, there's some interesting history for people have always been taking plants into these remote places, and there's just something about them. And that ties back to that psychological benefit. So there'll be a reason to keep it down there, hopefully. All right. So uh, using your crystal ball... Uh, thinking ahead, but not too far ahead. There's a lot of talk about going back to the moon, uh, both cislunar operations with a potential space station, uh, also uh, obviously eventually getting onto the surface. Um, do you see what you're doing here as something that is would enable having a, a module of some sort on the moon? But I suppose even before then in cislunar, would this be something that they could attach to a, a, a cislunar space station to to provide them with uh, fresh uh, produce? Yeah, Mark, I, I think it's definitely something that's going to happen. The, the time scale question is always the one biological life support systems. You know, there's increased uh, research in these areas, but it's always something that can, to some degree, be deferred a little bit longer because it's not necessarily always something critical for you know the next near-term steps i think there will be a stepwise uh, movement up i don't know if we'll see in the very near term a full sort of bigelow or inflatable or some other module that's attached onto uh, something in cislunar space or even in orbit but definitely uh, incremental steps into increasing the size of the plant production system on board station or whatever the next vehicle is, you know, hopefully the Deep Space Gateway has a small plant production system to really provide that psychological benefit. I think that's going to happen. And definitely in the midterm, we'll definitely see such systems operating on the, the lunar surface. It's without question that uh, it's it's something that's going to happen, just the time scale is what needs to be worked out. Well, I'd like to thank Matt for being my guest on the Space Q podcast. I, I hope you'll consider being a guest on a future show. And and uh, if you are planning on coming back to Canada, we'll be very happy to, to welcome you back. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate the, the time. And yeah, definitely uh, committed to the Canadian program. And I, you know, continue to follow what's going on in Canada, both via, you know, Space Q, of course, and uh, just what's coming out of CSA, and things are looking really positive and uh, looking forward to seeing how things develop in the next few years. It's going to be, uh, I think, exciting time for the Canadian space program. So all the best to you. Thanks, Mark. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Q podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. 
You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space, and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook at the SpaceQ. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn at Mark K. Boucher, and if we're connected, you'll get SpaceQ articles and the podcast notification in your newsfeed. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider rating the show and writing a review if you're so inclined. 